I'm really curious tonight to find out who in this room has or owns the most expensive item of clothing. And you know what? I was thinking about this earlier today. I am pretty sure, like, I could bet money that it's a male, not a female. For sure. For sure. Does anyone just yell out all at once, and I'll, I'll see if I can hear the most expensive one just by, just by chance. On the count of three, I want you to yell out the most expi- the most ex- I don't know what that word was, expensive item of clothing you have. All right, I'll give you a second to think about it. Just think about it. On go. So three, two, one, go. All right. Oh, wait, that, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. All right. It can be shoes. That counts. Three. Not that you're wearing, like ever. The most expensive thing you've ever bought that you wear on your body. Three, two, one, go. I heard, I heard 110 and I heard six plus too much. 450. Good Lord. 420. 450. Anyone top that? 700. <laughs> Rhiannon, I know you're lying. Where came up, people? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That wasn't like judging by your appearance. I just, I just know that, that we like Kmart. Who doesn't? I'm a Kmart person. I think the most expensive item of clothing that I've ever bought myself was when I landed my first job after finishing my study. And I got my first interior design job. This was, you know, only in March. Like, it hasn't been that long. (laughs) But this was before I was earning, like, real money, right? And so I bought myself as a treat and technically like for, you know, business meetings and blah, blah, blah. I bought myself like a real nice, like white blazer. And by expensive, I mean like 80 bucks, <laughs> you know, you know, that's like more than a tank of petrol. So that's a lot, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> but um, when I wear this blazer, right, I know that I've treated myself. You know, I feel like I've treated myself. I feel, you know, that I'm the boss. You know, I just feel like I am absolutely owning it when I put on this blazer, right? And I'm sure plenty of you have more expensive clothing, and, but I'm sure that most of you have one thing or one outfit or whatever that makes you feel a bit like that, yeah? You've got your go-to date outfit, hopefully not yet. <laughs> You've got your go-to, no, I'm kidding. You've got your go-to day one of youth camp or Hillsong conference outfit, you know? Everyone's got something like that. But I want to tell you tonight, let's bring it back for a second. I want to tell you tonight about the most expensive item of clothing that you as a Christian will ever wear in your life. In your life, I want to tell you about this item of clothing that will change your life forever, right? You put on this item of clothing and you are never the same again. You put on this item of clothing and you can walk in confidence. You put on this item of clothing, you can have a new identity with this item of clothing. And so I want to tell you about this tonight. And I want to use a story that most of us would know really well called the prodigal son. And it's in Luke 15. If you brought your Bibles with you, Luke 15. And if you were taking notes tonight, the title of my message tonight is called Rags to Robes. Rags to Robes. 
All right, so I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son, right? But basically, it's the story of this father and he has two sons. And the youngest son is like, hey, dad, I think it's about time that you give me what, you know, my half of the property of the estate. I think it's about time you pass that on to me. And uh, just give it to me a little bit early because I think I can live my life well. I think I can do it on my own. I think I'm old enough. I think I'm strong enough. I think I know enough to be able to go out on my own. And so the father doesn't argue and he splits the money between his two boys. And the youngest one, he packs his things up and, excuse me, and he goes on his way. And the Bible tells us that he goes on his way and he takes his money and he blows it all. He gets up to mischief. He lives a reckless life, it tells us in the Bible. He wastes it away. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He uses it for things that he shouldn't. And then all of a sudden one day, there comes a famine. He's got no money at all, no way to support himself. And he is starving, like not you skipped lunch starving, but like you skipped the last week starving. And so he just gets to this point of desperation and he needs something and he needs sustenance and and he needs a life that is different from the one that he's living right now. And so he he just gets desperate and he says, I know, I'll, I'll go and I'll beg people to give me a job. And so he goes and he begs this man to give him a job to, a job to feed the pigs. And so here's this guy who used to live on an estate, you know, with his family, with his brother. And he's feeding the pigs to try and, you know, just get something. The Bible tells, tells us the details. He's out eating the scraps with the pigs. He's that desperate. You've got to be pretty desperate to eat with the pigs, right? Pretty desperate. And so, you know, enough is enough and he's humiliated he's embarrassed he's not having a fun time anymore not having a fun time and so he says you know what even the people that my father employs don't live like this even the people that serve my father they don't even live in the house they live in another room even those people that aren't even my family but they're treated better in my house they get fed better in my house they've got it better than I do so I know I'll go back to my father And I won't expect anything of him, but I'll go back to my father and say, will you please just let me be your servant? Will you let me work for you just for a worker's pay? Like, you don't have to, I'm not your son. You don't have to know me. You don't have to talk to me. I just need some money. I need something. And so he comes up with this plan. He sets off for home. And then he's walking down his long driveway. I like to imagine he's walking down this long driveway and his father sees him coming. And the verse in the Bible says, his father saw him coming like a beggar, like a homeless man. And his father, without a thought, sees him and has compassion on him. He doesn't judge him. He has compassion on him. And he runs to his son and he sweeps him up and he kisses him. And he hugs him and he embraces him. 
And then the bit that I want to highlight to you tonight may seem like a really weird thing to highlight out of this whole story. But his son says, quick, guys, go and get my robe. Go and get my personal robe, my actual robe, and put it over his shoulders. And bring me a signet ring and let me put it on his, fig- uh, on his finger as a sign of his sonship to me. And so they do that and he says, go, f- go kill the fattest calf. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate because my son is home. And he was counted as a son again. Pretty cool story. I love this story and it tells us so much. But I want you to keep that, that one little highlighted part that I just read to you. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind for a moment. Because, you know, this story isn't just a, a fun part of the Bible, right? It's not just a random story chucked in there. Jesus wasn't just trying to be an entertainer, right? But this story was written before you existed about you. And whether you realize it or not, whether you have literally run away from your parents and live in life on your own or, you know, I don't know what your story is. But this story is specifically written about you and it's specifically written about me. <clears throat> Sorry, I went a bit crazy in praise and worship. My voice is on its way out. So uh, I apologize in advance. But you know what? Just like this son, our first error, right? Sin is our human nature, right? You may be the the best behaved kid at school. You might be your parents' favorite child. I don't know. But you are still sinful. Our instinct is still sinful. And the first mistake, like the son, was that he was arrogant, right? He got arrogant and he got proud. And he thought, I can do this way better on my own. I can live my own life. Way better. Way better on my own. Right? And so that's his first mistake. This arrogance, this pride gets to him. And then he keeps going. And, and, you know, he becomes greedy. And he says to his dad, now get this right. This is so insulting back in the day. Is he basically says to his dad, by asking for his inheritance early, is basically back in this day saying to your father, look, I wish you were already dead. That's basically what he was saying to his father. He gets greedy. And then we do similar things, you know. We go and we spend too much time focusing on things that we shouldn't be focusing on at all. Right? We develop idols, whether it be a a pretty girl or a pretty boy or, you know, or a sport or our schoolwork. You know, we develop idols and we pull ourselves away from God further. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, Revival Week. Don't want to mess up the stage. (laughs) and then we go on and you know we might see that pretty girl or that pretty boy I should say like masculine boy or something other than pretty but you see that boy and you start thinking of them in ways that you probably shouldn't be thinking of them and you start hanging out with them more than you hang out with God and you start sacrificing time with your family for this person this person may not even be good for you but it's something and then maybe and then maybe something happens and you go and you get angry and you start swearing all the time and you start cussing and you start lashing out at people and you know what sometimes we start arguments for the sake of starting arguments you know sometimes we get bitter and twisted and angry and we just 
lash out and we start arguments for sport, right? And before you know, you're getting messier and messier and then you're trying to protect yourself and you're looking out for number one and you start getting a little bit selfish, right? And you start not caring about other people and how your actions affect them. And the people around you are getting hurt, whether it be willingly or not, but you start getting a bit selfish. Or maybe you just decided that as part of living your own life, that you want to indulge and overindulge in the things that God has clearly told us are not good for us. You know, maybe you overindulge in partying or in alcohol or in, I don't know what it is, but it's a mess. And then maybe you start throwing around a few little white lies to cover your tracks. You know, to make your life seem a little bit better than it is. A little bit less messy than it is. And you try and paint a real pretty picture of your life. And before you know it, uh, hang on. And you start looking. And like the sun, he has this moment of, uh-oh. This isn't all it's cracked up to be. I'm a little bit hungry. That was a bad move. And you start getting a little bit hungry. And you go, you know what? This life that I'm living right now does not satisfy me in the way that I thought it would. Uh-oh. What do you do now? It doesn't quite satisfy how I expected it to. It doesn't fill the gap. I didn't want my life to look like this. I didn't expect it to look like this. And just like the sun... You know, then we're left with the idea of how far we've fallen and how bad we really are. You know, and so just to add to the mess, I mean, I don't know, you get caught up in your head and you head over and you're, you're humiliated. One thing that I didn't realize until I started reading this story more was that this was a Jewish boy feeding the pigs. In their culture, that's like as far from home as you can get. That is as far from as holy and as righteous as you could get. Being a Jewish boy and feeding the pigs because you have no other option. And so he's humiliated. He's embarrassed. He's full of shame. He's full of guilt. He has no self-worth. He has nothing left. He's alone. He's probably feeling a bit depressed, a little bit anxious about how he's going to make ends meet. And before he knows, this life that looked oh so pretty in the pictures looks like a big mess. It looks like a big mess. And you know what? And, you know, we see in his plan, he's like, even the workers, you know, even the workers have it better than me. And we get desperate and we start to go into panic mode and we think, you know, God, I'm sorry. I didn't mean for this to happen. It just kind of happened. I didn't mean for this to happen. And we go, God, I'll serve you. God, I'll just, I'll serve you. I'll do anything. I'll stop swearing. I'll spend time with my parents. And we try and clean ourselves up all on our own. And it's not going anywhere. It just makes it worse. You can't fix it by being a good person. You can't fix it by living a life that looks pretty on the outside. The mess just gets spread around. But you know what, that's, you know, it's a bit doom and gloom right here, right now. <laughs> oh gosh. 
But just like the end of this story, things get a bit brighter, you know. And when we just come back to the Father, when we acknowledge that we can't work at it, we can't strive for it, we can't try to fix it, and we come back to the Father and He sees us and He has compassion on us, like in this story, And God's reaction to our sin is actually the same as the father in this story, right? God's plan for you and me to not be separate from God anymore. Because you know how it works, right? God and his holiness and us and our sin is like oil and water. The two can't exist together because if they did, then God wouldn't be entirely holy or entirely perfect. And so we can't be freely in God's presence like this because it would diminish His holiness. And that's not God. And so He was still so desperate though to put His holiness aside and to think about a way, any way that He could make a plan for us to be allowed in His company again. Right? And his solution, like in this story, I read you what it says from the verse. But his solution was to give us our own robe that in Isaiah is called the robe of righteousness. And I want to explain that a little bit to you tonight because a lot of the time we associate righteousness with works. And that's not how it works. In Isaiah 61 verse 10, it says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for He has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. And I am now like a bridegroom dressed for His wedding or a bride in her jewels. Right? The robe of righteousness, and it changes everything. It changes everything. It allows you to be in a relationship with God It covers over everything that you've done wrong. It gives you a clean slate. A clean slate. But you know what? We sing it all the time in that song, Reckless Love. We couldn't earn it. We can't afford it. We sure as heck can't afford it. I was thinking earlier this week about, you know, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. I was thinking if you equated that wage to a dollar per person. And if you think of it in dollars, it's massive, let alone in death. It's massive. And we couldn't earn it. We could never afford it. We can't steal it. We got nothing. The only thing is for us to be allowed to accept it as a gift. But to give a gift to somebody, you have to purchase it. And the Bible also tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you were bought at a price. And it was a high price. It was a really high price. And you know, the price wasn't just, I mean, I know you guys know where I'm, know where I'm heading now, but the price was not just in Jesus' body. Right? There was so much else that went on. And so tonight, I just want to tell you one thing that he paid for it with. And he paid for it with his identity. And what he did was, first of all, 
He paid with his identity as the Son of God. You know, back in um, early days of the Bible, you, does anyone know the story of Joseph? <clears throat> Joseph was given a robe by his dad. And it was, I'm sure, much more flattering than this one. But um, <coughs> he was given a robe by his dad. And it was, I was studying it this week. And then who knows the story of Samuel and Hannah. And Hannah couldn't have a baby. And she prayed to God for a baby and said, God, if you just give me a baby, then... I will dedicate him to you and he will live in your house all the days of his life. And the Bible actually states, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 19 says that every time, every once a year that Hannah returned to the temple to see Samuel and to honour God, she would bring him a new robe, a bigger robe. And then just as we read in the story of the prodigal son, and then Jesus had his own set of robes. And we hear about it in, um, in Revelation chapter 1 and in Isaiah chapter 6, if you want to go and look it up. Don't have time to go into it today. But Jesus had his own set of robes. And the robe was a symbol that said, This is my son who I love. He belongs to me. That's what the robe symbolizes. And you know, when they crucified Jesus, as they were crucifying him, they gambled over his what? They gambled over his identity as the Son of God. And they mocked him, put up a sign if you really are the Son of God, then you would just save yourself. And they questioned him. And in Isaiah, it says that he was beaten beyond recognition. That's a lot of beating. Beyond recognition. And in Matthew chapter 27, it actually says that God turned his back away because he couldn't, he couldn't look at him. was the son of God who became the son of man so that the son of man can be the son of God I know I cry all the time <laughs> but it just never gets old he laid down his robe so that for Claire, she could wear this robe that says, you are my daughter, whom I love. You belong to me. And the second part of his identity, the second part of his identity that he gave up was his identity as the spotless one. Because Jesus died a criminal's death, not just any death, not an easy death. He died a sinner's death, a criminal's death for a completely innocent man. And all I want to say about that tonight is that he 
died a completely unfair death so that you could be treated unfairly. And that's not a negative thing. I don't mean that in a negative way, but it's totally unfair for you and me to be given this in the first place. He experienced the cost of being imperfect so that you would know what it feels like to be made perfect. Flipped it completely on his head. And his sacrifice covers up all our spots, all our stains, all of our mess so that you can't even see it anymore. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Even though you were once distant from him, living in the shadows of your evil thoughts and actions, he reconnected you back to himself. He released his supernatural peace to you through the sacrifice of his body as the sin payment on your behalf so that you would dwell in his presence and now there's nothing between you and Father God for he sees you as holy, as flawless and as restored. And that's the second thing that this robe says is that I am holy, I am flawless and I am restored. Not because of me, but because of the robe of righteousness, the most expensive thing that you will ever wear in your life the most expensive thing that you would wear. And I know some of you are probably thinking, well, if grace is just that easy or if righteousness is just that easy, then why does the Bible tell us distinctly to strive for holiness? Why does it tell us to live a certain way? You know, why does it tell us the things that we should aim for and the things that we should leave out of our lives? And that's because righteousness and holiness are not the same. Because righteousness is taking on Christ's identity. It's taking on that robe of righteousness that says, I am clean, I am flawless, I am restored, and I'm a child of God and am allowed to be in His presence. That's what righteousness is. But holiness is handing over our identity to Him. It's saying, God, I don't want to just live like Meg, but... I want to be seen like Jesus. And that's what holiness does. That's what holiness does. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 to 16 says, Instead, shape your lives to become like the Holy One who called you. For Scripture says you are to be holy because I am holy. We should want to be holy and live holy because Jesus is holy. And it's like I talked about at the end of last term, the motivation of salvation. The motivation of salvation is that we have this robe and why wear the mess when you can wear the best? Why would you want to do that? And so I want to challenge you tonight that are you living a life that looks like yourself and your sin, and your mess? Or are you living a life that looks like Jesus and looks like a child of God and looks like flawless and restored and whole and rich in what God gives us? You know, it's this constant battle and this constant decision of, you know, something comes up and you, you know, it's this party comes up and you really want to be there, but, you know, should I really be there? Because if I'm going, I'm going like this. Do I want to look like Meg in this situation? Do I want to look like Jesus 
in this situation? I have a fight with my parents. Do I want to look like Meg in this situation or do I want to look like Jesus in this situation? That's the difference between holiness and righteousness. Just to wrap up in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, it says, For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserve it, but because it was His plan from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, sorry, to show us His grace through Christ Jesus. It was His plan all along. And that's the best life that you could live, quite frankly. Why would you want to live in the mess? Anyway, why don't you guys just close your eyes?